0: Chapter 13, Constantinople 3: The Abolition of God The Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Third Council of Constantinople, met in 680-681. It is the last of the councils acknowledged by the Eastern and Western Churches alike, and Orthodox Protestantism as well. The Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea, 787, is not recognized by Protestants because of its defense of images. The problem, again, was humanistic heresy. For some, this statement is guilty of reductionism, of oversimplification. They are insistent on seeing good faith on all sides, but with intellectual misunderstandings governing some or all of the participating theologians and bishops. The problem, we are told, was a complex one. It was compounded by the differences of meaning created by Greek and Latin terms. It was further compounded by rather dubious psychologies derived from the ancient world, which governed the conciliar definitions of Christ. We cannot, therefore, too readily agree with the conciliar definitions of orthodoxy and heresy, it is suggested. The answer to this that, in terms of biblical faith, man's basic problem is not inadequate knowledge, but sin. Man sinned deliberately and willfully against God. He sought to make himself, rather than God, the ultimate source of truth and law, the basic point and frame of reference. As Van Til has written, As a sinner, man seeks to make himself, instead of God, the ultimate aim as well as the ultimate standard in life. Moreover, Van Til has added, Here then is the heart of the matter. In Adam, man has set aside the law of his creator, and therewith has become a law to himself. He will be subject to none but himself. He seeks to be autonomous. He knows that he is a creature and ought to be subject to the law of his creator. But man revolts against this. He makes himself the final reference point in all predication. Sinful man is not neutral. His knowledge is geared to one end, to establish his own autonomy. The only relationship he will tolerate with God is a democratic one. On that Arminian basis, with man casting the deciding vote against God and Satan by voting for himself, man finds God tolerable. It is ridiculous to assume that there is anything neutral about man as he approaches Christ. Every non-neutral fiber of sinful man's being is a quiver as he approaches Christ and seeks either to eliminate Christ or to integrate him into his system. The Third Council of Constantinople met to deal with monothelism, an attempt to integrate Jesus Christ into an implicitly non-Christian perspective. Monothelism conceded the victory to Chalcedon. It accepted as necessary to religious respectability the doctrine of the two natures, but it insisted that Christ was subject to one will only, the human will, being either merged into the divine or absorbed by it. This doctrine represented an attempt by the emperor Heraclius to unite the Yucatanians and Monophysites with the Orthodox and bring religious unity to the empire. In the course of its history, Monothelism gained many prominent advocates. Sergius, patriarch of Constantinople, did the theological work for Heraclius, and his successors Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter continued it. Honorius, Pope of Rome, also advocated it. Other prominent Monothelite churchmen were Theodorus of Pheran, Cyrus of Alexandria, Macarius of Antioch, and Stephen, his disciples, all were condemned by name at the Sixth Council. Sophronius, a Palestinian monk, was early a leader in the struggle against Monothelism. Martin I, Pope of Rome, also led in the battle against the heresy and was banished to the Crimea by the emperor. When Pope Martin stood before the civil authorities in Constantinople on trial, he was denied the right to call attention to the heresies of the Monotheolites. Don't mix here anything about the faith. You are on trial for high treason. We too are Christians and Orthodox. Martin replied, would to God you were. But even on this point I shall testify against you, on the day of that dreadful judgment. A Greek abbot, Maximus, was also prominent in the battle against monothealism, and for this lie was scourged and had his right hand and his tongue cut off by the emperor, dying soon thereafter on August 13, 662. Saint Maximus had earlier been private secretary to Heraclius before entering the church. Maximus had been responsible for the Lateran Synod of 649, called by Martin I, and had written its condemnation of monothealism. Emperor Constance too had his right hand and tongue publicly cut off to prevent further writing and speaking for the faith by maximus who rejected every flattering and threatening effort to silence him the men who defended the faith were aware of the perils they were not immune from the fear of man but they were even more subject to the fear of god In the midst of each council was placed the Holy Gospels, to indicate not only the authority of scripture, but the presence of Jesus Christ as the sovereign head of every true council and Christian gathering. The intense earnestness of the delegates, and their hostility to the slightest deviation from the faith, rested on the belief that heresy represented not a lack of understanding, but a deliberate attempt to subvert and destroy the faith, to attack and abolish God. The Enlightenment has so warped man's perspective that men believe salvation is knowledge and sin is therefore ignorance. The will of man is therefore governed by his mind and the information available to the mind. But this psychology is alien to biblical faith. Man's sinful nature governs his mind and will and bends them to its purposes. Man's problem is not ignorance but sin, not lack of knowledge but a will to abolish God from the world. The unregenerate man is governed by the desire to be his own God and to will the death of God. God can be abolished from philosophical consideration by variations of three ways. First, there can be an outright denial of God. It can be held that God does not exist and that the concept is unnecessary. Second, instead of a denial of God, the denial of man can be used to abolish God. If man be reduced to mere sensations or an animal whose mental processes are worthless, man cannot know God because, by definition, he can know nothing. To deny God means also to deny man, and hence these two approaches go hand in hand. Charles Darwin relied on this denial of man. He did not deny that God seemed to be an inescapable concept and reality, that it was not possible to explain the world apart from him. But rather than acknowledge God, Darwin denied man and any validity to man's thinking and mind. His own admission of this fact is quite revelatory in his unwillingness to accept any thinking which led to God. In a letter to W. Graham of July 3, 1881, Darwin told him, Nevertheless you have expressed my inward conviction though far more vividly and clearly than I could have done that the universe is not the result of chance but then with me the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals are of any value or at all trustworthy would any one trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind Darwin did not conclude from this untrustworthiness of man's mind that his own scientific hypotheses were untrustworthy. It did not occur to him to invalidate science and evolution by this view of man. It was only used against God. This is, of course, childish thinking, but it is even more clearly sinful thinking. Third, God can be denied by an affirmation of God which leaves him as an adjunct of man or the captive of man. God can then be praised fulsomely, but the glory and the power are quietly transferred to man. The monotheolites were in effect abolishing God by an affirmation which introduced humanity into the Godhead and made man one with God, so that Christianity was in effect nullified. They did this in the name of Christianity, but the consequences were humanistic atrophy. At the sixth council, the letter of Pope Agatho was an important statement of the case against monothealism. Agatho strongly affirmed the position of Chalcedon. But when we make a confession concerning one of the same three persons of that holy trinity, of the Son of God, or God the Word, and of the mystery of his adorable dispensation according to the flesh, we assert that all things are double in the one and in the same our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to the evangelical tradition. That is to say, we confess his two natures, to wit the divine and the human of which and in which he, even after the wonderful and inescapable union, subsist. And we confess that each of his natures has its own natural propriety, and that the divine has all things that are divine, without any sin. And we recognize that each one of the two natures, of the one and the same incarnated, that is, humanated humanity, Word of God is in him unconfusedly, inseparably, and unchangeably, intelligence alone discerning a unity, to avoid the error of confusion, for we equally detest the blasphemy of division and of co-mixture, for when we confess two natures and two natural wills and two natural operations in our one Lord Jesus Christ, we do not assert that they are contrary or opposed one to the other as those who err from the path of truth and accuse the apostolic tradition of doing. For Hellenism, the confusion and co-mixture were natural and necessary, hence its humanism. Matter represented the world of inchoate being, whereas form represented divine being and the universe is the product of the co-mixture of the two. The biblical perspective of created being and the uncreated and the creating being of God was totally alien to Hellenism. Greek philosophy could understand a total commixture and confusion; it could not understand incarnation as a result as it approached the doctrine of the incarnation. it tried to force it into the mould of commixture and confusion as the logically necessary step. Christ as a supreme form, must of necessity be commingled with matter to provide the logical structure or logos for all men and all philosophy. The monophysites were thus insistent on a single nature. Here in this one nature, a commingling and confusion took place. But Chalcedon and Constantinople too blocked this from consideration by declaring it to be heresy. Logically, the Hellenic, and especially the Neoplatonic tradition, required the confusion and commixture, and so it reappeared as monothelism, the doctrine of two natures but one will. Had this doctrine triumphed, the church would either have stagnated or become a new channel for the development of Hellenism. Both things happened, but the condemnation of monotheism made possible the survival of orthodoxy. From the Hellenic perspective, man's salvation involves ascent on the scale of being into deification. Man progressively must forsake the world of matter for the world of form, i.e. spirit. Wherever Hellenism prevailed, there asceticism and monasticism prevailed. In the Western Church, asceticism and monasticism, after an early triumph, declined, and they are increasingly becoming relics rather than the central force. In the monophysite churches, the monastic orders control all higher offices because they represented by definition the higher truth and power of the Church. The definition of faith of the council spoke of the flesh and will of Christ humanity as deified, but by this it meant that, under the doctrine of economic appropriations, the human flesh and will were totally governed by the divine nature and will, and were thus one without confusion with the deity. It was, the definition said, the economic conservation. After reviewing the conclusions of the five previous councils, the definition declared, Defining all this, we likewise declare that in him are two natural wills and two natural operations, indivisibly, inconvertibly, inseparably, inconfusedly, according to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, and these two natural wills are not contrary the one to the other, God forbid, as the impious heretics assert, but his human will follows, and that not as resisting and reluctant, but rather as subject to his divine and omnipotent will. We glorify two natural operations indivisibly, immutably, inconfusedly, inseparably, in the same our Lord Jesus Christ, our true God, that is to say, a divine operation and a human operation, according to the divine preacher Leo, who most distinctly asserts as follows, For each form does in communion with the other what pertains properly to it, the word, namely, doing that which pertains to the word, and the flesh that which pertains to the flesh. For we will not admit one natural operation in God and in the creature, as we will not exalt into the divine essence what is created, nor will we bring down the glory of the divine nature to the place suited to the creature. We recognize the miracles and the sufferings as of one and the same person, but of one or of the other nature of which he is and in which he exists, as Cyril admirably says. Preserving, therefore, the inconfusedness and indivisibility, we make briefly this whole confession, believing our Lord Jesus Christ to be one of the Trinity, and after the Incarnation, our true God, we say that his two natures shone forth in his one subsistence, in which he both performed the miracles and endured the sufferings through the whole of his economic conservation, and that not in appearance only, but in very deed, and this by reason of the difference of nature which must be recognized in the same person, for although joined together, yet each nature wills and does the things proper to it, and that indivisibly and inconfusedly, wherefore we confess two wills and two operations, concurring most fitly in him for the salvation of the human race. Monotheism, the council said plainly, did two things. First, it exalted into the divine essence what is created. And second, it brought down the glory of the divine nature to the place suited to the creature. Against this humanistic confusion, the council was adamant. In explaining their definition to the emperor, the council, declaring that Satan has raised up the very ministers of Christ against him, explained its decision in the Pros Phoneticus. And as we recognize two natures, also we recognize two natural wills and two natural operations. For we dare not say that either of the natures which are in Christ in his incarnation is without a will and operation, lest in taking away the properties of those natures we likewise take away the natures of which they are the properties.' For we neither deny the natural will of his humanity or its natural operation, lest we also deny what is the chief thing of the dispensation for our salvation, and lest we attribute passions to the Godhead. Therefore we declare that in him there are two natural wills and two natural operations, proceeding commonly and without division. The monotheolites, by absorbing the human will into the divine will, opened the door for the similar absorption of the wills of all redeemed men into the divine will, so that sanctification became progressive deification. Neander observed concerning this, The question concerning the relations of the human and the divine will to each other in Christ was connected also in a way that deserves notice, with the question respecting the relation of the human to the divine will in the redeemed in their state of perfection. At least many among the monotheolites supposed the final result of the perfect development of the divine life in believers would be in them, as in the case of Christ, a total absorption of the human will and God's will, so that in all there would be a subjective as well as objective identity of will, which consistently carried out would lead to the pantheistic notion of an entire absorption of all individuality of existence in the one original spirit. Maximus well understood this and contended earnestly against the notion. In seven hundred eleven a monotheolite, Philippicus, or Bardanes, became emperor, and the persecution of orthodoxy was resumed for two years, until Anastasius II dethroned him and ended the persecution. John of Damascus 680-764 was the last Eastern theologian to give the issue significant attention. In his Exposition of the Orthodox Faith, John made it clear that any other than the Orthodox position was a denial of the Incarnation. But if those who declare that Christ has only one nature should say also that the nature is a simple one, they must admit either that he is God, pure and simple, and thus reduce the incarnation to a mere pretense, or that he is only man, according to Nestorius. And how then about his being perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, And when can Christ be said to be of two natures, if they hold that he is of one composite nature after the union? For it is surely clear to everyone that before the union Christ's nature was one. The third council of Constantinople made it clear that the incarnation was not a pretense, it was real the council made it equally clear that the ostensible Christianity of the monotheolites was a pretense. It was a humanism, which in effect abolished God, and no theologian can miss its implications. They, for their part, declared, We will not exalt into the divine essence what is created, nor will we bring down the glory of the divine nature to the place suited to the creature. The position of the monotheolites was a deadly one, and despite the earnestness of some of its humble believers at some points in the history of monotheolites, as well as the monophysites, the position was one of sterility and decay. It was not orthodox Christianity, and it had none of the vigor of biblical faith. It was not an honest and open humanism, and thus it could not develop in terms of its real meaning. Its basic vigor was in hostility." And its destiny has been decay and death.